Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I come from this place, I come in peace, Earthlings, from Silicon Valley. Some of you, I guess, are from Northern California, maybe even from that area, but uh, there's San Jose and San Francisco and Sanford's up on the left-hand side. But this thing, this place is, child transfixes people around the world. I, I have had, uh, just in the last few months, I've had a chance to teach an entrepreneurship course in Abu Dhabi, right in the, uh, early March, right in the height of the of stuff going on in the Middle East right now, which we could have a whole lot of fun chatting about. I mean, it was in, in students your age. It was, it was an incredible experience. It's the fifth time I've done it uh, over uh, the last five years. Go and teach a whole course for a week. Uh, in January, I was in um, uh, Taiwan uh, teaching students your age as well in the uh, Republic of uh, China. So, you know, they, it, it turns out, and maybe many of you have had a chance to do some traveling like that, you're finding out that the world is really, really flat and really small. That, you know, entrepreneurship is a state of mind. It is not Silicon Valley. It's not this place. But Silicon Valley has an interesting way of thinking. So let's review what that is today. And that's my goal over the next, you know, hour, as long as you can take it, to just, I picked a few of the things that, resonate with me and with our team at Stanford. And I'll tell you about our team in a moment. So, you know, we got a big playground. Uh, it's been developing over 75 years in that physical location. I get it. You know, it's a big laboratory to watch. What created these companies? There's mine. There's uh, the one I had the uh, luck of doing, Symantec. And there's all these other logos, you know, uh, of famous companies, both in information technologies and medical, and maybe, hopefully, in uh, green technology someday, as well as other businesses. So, you know, you read about it and, and people come and study it and economists are trying to figure it out. Even when I'm down here, I get into, involved in discussions about, okay, well, what about the little Santa Barbara, you know, ecosystem? And, and I'm not an economist. I just love entrepreneurship as a way of thinking. So it makes it, though, a fun place uh, to be a professor and to observe what's going on uh, right now. So we do that via... Um, it's a, a center or unit called Stanford Technology Ventures Program. And it, oh, my goodness, there's about uh, two dozen of us involved at this point. Um, and uh, these are professors and staff members. And we educate uh, a few thousand students. These are Stanford students, undergrad and grad a year. 32 courses, the same quarter system, so it's about 10 a quarter. Um, you know, and I get to teach a few, but I mostly just hire folks to, um, or influence folks to do such a thing. So this is what we've learned from it, um, at least in my opinion. Um, let's just, for a moment, think about what is entrepreneurship? What does it mean to you? Uh, we'll help you. So I want to get you involved and make this more of an experience than just, you know, uh, having me tell stories. So the first step is, let's break it into two. And this is one of my favorite models, is that entrepreneurship is actually two types of things. Somebody was just talking about that. You know, the upper half was this evaluation of opportunity, where markets and products collide. Um, and then something good, cool happens. Um, you know, an, an idea turns into an opportunity, maybe. And then the other is the pursuit of the opportunity, getting the kind of talent and uh, money together to make it happen. 
So we, this is the stuff that uh, we tried to outline in the textbook over the last few years. So, man, look at this. Seven questions. I've taken seven to, uh, to take a stab at this. The first two uh, have to do with this product and market uh, um, of evaluating opportunity. The next two have to do with money, and or you think. And then the last three have to do with the team stuff. Let's take them one at a time. What it, why is your venture a true opportunity? Well, this is a uh, funny-looking slide, but it means it really helps when the wind is behind your back. Uh, or, you know, in this case, of catching waves, but we want to show some respect to Japan, not use too many metaphors there. The wind is behind your back. Uh, that means it's a lot easier when um, that is, uh, it, it's, you know, to, to get ahead, you know, to sail that way. So, look, I got really lucky on the fifth wave um, because I caught the software wave. But you have a tremendous amount of waves. Tremendous. This was just from a few years ago that we grabbed this. But, you know, it goes back. People have been catching waves for a long, long time. Um, back to, to steam power in uh, railroads, um, to electricity. So I happened to catch a software wave with Symantec. We were good, you know, but we were also lucky. And we caught a, a, a market condition you know, people had viruses. They, there was no debate that they needed a solution. I mean, viruses were getting nasty. So we were able to do that uh, and solve that problem, just like the folks were talking about that. So there's a lot of different waves right now. As a matter of fact, let's just look at this. We got waves in environment and sustainability. We got waves in security and economic stability, waves in digital and physical infrastructure, and waves in human health. So, all right, how are you going to look at this? I mean, come, you've got 50 years ahead of you of gainful productivity, as somebody said. How are you going to look at this? Are, you, are these problems that are like, oh, God, let's go drinking right now, and I'm just going to self-medicate and, you know, and just forget about it because it's, you know, uh, I got money for the weekend. That's all that matters. Or, you know, take an entrepreneurial view of it and say, whoa, these are gigantic market opportunities. I mean, if I got all excited saying, wow, I caught a wave, man. I, I, software was, personal computers were coming along, and they were, all, everybody was going to have a computer on the desk, and I just happened to be the right time and the, uh, the right place, and we built software, and, we, and it was so intoxicating to, to be part of that. By the way, I had a company that, that after that that failed. So it's not a matter of, you know, every time, everything you touch is successful. It, it, we'll get into the whole concept of failure later. But still... That was maybe, oh gosh, you know, a marketplace of a, of a few, you know, measured billion, you know, not trillions like the energy marketplace, if you, we're going to put it in economic terms, or some of these others, the health marketplace. These are trillion dollar markets, but they're also huge problems. But that means tremendous opportunity because that's the way entrepreneurs look at it. But you still got to execute. So what is it that investors look for. I mean, you can sit here and say, look at these tremendous problems. You know, they're huge markets and they're growing, sadly. I mean, in this earth, it's, there's not going to be much to this earth and we don't solve these. So, you know, we're pretty motivated to, to, um, to, together to inspire you to go after it and for you to go after it. But we still got to get operationalized here. I mean, how do you, if you're really going to, since let's take the view of the entrepreneur here, how are you going to raise money? And you've had, you had Ann Blatt here last 
week. So let's hear from one of uh, Ann's uh, colleagues in that business called Venture Capital. This is a pretty famous fellow uh, associated with the first browser and for the internet. His name is Mark Andreessen. Some people call him like, you know, the, one of the parents of the internet. Um, He's got his own VC firm here. He was an early investor in Facebook. He's uh, on the board of HP. Let's hear from him. How do we go from you know, having a big idea like that to go after a big market to truly getting venture capital as a startup? So let's, this will be our first video. Well, so the general criteria for a successful high-tech startup, um, in my view, there's, you see different sort of rules of thumb from different people. But the, the three big things you always come back to are, is, it, is, is there a big market? And, and by the way, that comes in two parts. Is there a big existing market that you think you can go after and sort of displace incumbents? Or, is, is it, or do you believe there will be a new market that will be big? So big market. Um, is there a fundamental technology or economic change that causes you to basically justify having a new company? Um, and that's really important. Um, so, you know, and, and the way I always think about that is, is there a 10x change happening in the technology landscape? Um, is something 10x faster or 10x cheaper or 10x better? And if it's not 10x, we, we view as both VCs and entrepreneurs, we really have to ask ourselves, like, is it really worth doing? Because um, it's really hard. I mean, it's really hard to start new companies. Talking about macro theory, new, new companies generally shouldn't exist. Um, um, existing companies are usually pretty good at what they do. Um, and so for a new company to exist, it not only has to, like, you know, come in and go, you know, go into business and bring a product to market, but it has to bring a product to market that's so much better than what already exists that it punches through the sort of status quo. Um, and, you know, most customers in most markets are pretty happy buying from the current suppliers, and so there has to be a real kind of edge uh, on the thing. And we look for that in either a technology change, usually a technology change or an economic change, um, which are often the same thing. Um, and then the third is team. Is, is the team outstanding? And if you think about this as an entrepreneur, it becomes a question of the founding team. Um, you know, if, you know, some companies are solo founders and they can work, but generally, you know, most of us, like myself, who are human beings, are mortal. Um, you know, you want to have a founding team of, multi, of, uh, of complementary skill sets. And so you want to have at least one super strong technologist, um, quite possibly more than one. Um, some of the best startups are actually more than one founding technologist. And then it often helps to have somebody who's like a product or who's a, who's a, a market or sales person or has a sort of really good understanding of business uh, on the team certainly helps a lot. Um, and so we sort of look at market product and team. Um, and, you know, the reality is you need all three. Um, I would say, interestingly, if you're going to compromise as an investor, if we're going to compromise on one of those, it would actually be the product. And the reason I say that is because a great market is a lot easier to make up for with iterative product execution um, than a poor market. Because the problem with a poor market, a small market, is even if you do a great job on the product, there just aren't that many customers. It's hard to ever get big. Let's try to parse this a little bit. So first of all, these are the, um, from a series that we do, just like this. We do it on Wednesday afternoons. Um, and I get to do the hosting rather than uh, uh, doing the talking. But um, we're lucky to have people like him. And so we put it all up on the web uh, immediately. So please enjoy. And every, everything I'm showing you today is from ecorner.stanford.edu. So that's the end of the advertisement on that. That's more just stimulating to keep learning. But what did he say? What did he say? So one thing uh, you know, caught me every time I hear that, and probably the reason I wanted to put it uh, in the mix today was that 10x comment. That just sticks with me. It's got to be 10x better, you know, uh, because existing companies do things sort of okay. Uh, and they're still trying to stay in business. So when, um, whether you're going to be, you know, trying to do a startup or in the business plan competitions or whatever, um, 
how about just observing startups and say, oh, I see, they're, re they're getting some traction, they're getting some momentum because they're just doing things about 10x better. I mean, 5x better, 15x better. They're just, and, and that just means you gotta be really damn good at what you do and solving somebody's pain. You know, in other words, I got a pain pill, here I come. Or, um, sorry for the echo here, I'll keep moving it down. Um, or uh, just delighting somebody. Just, just, just delighting uh, a, a, a user or, you know, like a game, like Zynga. Zynga delights a lot of people, and that's why it's growing. It's obviously not solving somebody's particular pain. So anyway, that, that's the difference between an idea and an opportunity. It's great to have an idea to go after one of those big markets. That's fine, but it's got to be something specific like what Mark was talking about. Let's go on to question two. Let's get even more specific. Let's try to develop something called a strategy. And um, the code word for strategy nowadays is um, positioning. It's a, it's a marketing term, it turns out. Um, so uh, let's chat about that. How, what is your competitive positioning and how are you developing your partners and, and customers while developing the product and service? That's a long, nice piece of grammar. That's because I grew up in Georgia. Um, so first one is a fellow named Steve Blank, and I hope, uh, by the way, I hope you have all these speakers or, uh, someday. These are, these are people I admire and they help us teach, and like I said, I brought them with me on, on my bus today. Um, so Steve has this model, it looks really complicated, and I'm simply saying this, and this is, I speak, I'm particularly speaking to the engineers in the room. If you're like me, when I learned engineering, it's just, we just developed a product, and we did all the, we had a scientific method, you know, we'd, you know, we'd write out the specs and we'd go through a process, and testing it and, um, and then ship it. Well, too many times in startups, and it still happens, uh, the engineers are in control of the company, period, and they really don't have a, a, um, a broader perspective. And so they never talk to a customer or a user or a potential, say, partner that's going to help them be successful, partner meaning you know, another company. And then they ship the product, and then it they, they bl blows their mind that nobody's buying um, because but, it, but it's so cool you know they made it for themselves that's fine it's great when you make products that delight your you know or, or solve some pain that you're having but not talking to people until you've actually finished the thing and you know it, it, it's so counterintuitive I bet you're saying that's it, it's a no-brainer just of course nobody does that but they do and so this book uh, four steps to the epiphany is simply just telling students to leave the building. Let's hear from the author himself talk about this process of developing customers while developing, at the same time, developing a product. So let's hear from Steve. Unless some of you have been working in a specific domain for the last 20 years or so, the odds are that anything you're thinking about customers and markets are nothing more than a guess. And you go, oh, no, the buddy's in the dorm. They, they like, liked it. And, and look, you know, I put it up and I got 300 hits. It's not a business. In fact, the heuristic is, you know, if you can't get 10,000 hits, you know, like in Silicon Valley, like your server's not connected. Um, but, but it's not a business. The real notion is how do you take your idea, size the opportunity, and figure out whether your hypotheses, your guesses about customers, about the problems you're solving, about your product, are correct. 
And the first thing I teach students and coach young entrepreneurs is while your hypotheses are great, have all of them you want, you got me excited. The next step is get the hell out of the building and test them. On a web company, you could do that virtually. You could get users to click on your page. If it's a physical product, you physically leave the comfort of your dorm or your office, and you go out and you talk to people. And the first step you want to do is leave any notion of your slides or website or whatever at home and go out and test some of the fundamental hypotheses that you have about your business. And you have two that are just absolutely essential. One is, in any company that you're making a product or service, you believe you're solving a problem or a need that a customer has. Great, I'll believe you. Now show me that there are customers out there who have agreed with you, who have said, why, yes, this really is a problem, and it's the most important problem we have. And in fact, it's so important, we'd actually pay you money or use your service. Or if it's not a problem, you could convince me that it's a need I didn't even know I had, and I'll rush and go use your site or buy your product. And while you're out there, by the way, you could find out millions of other things about customers. And this is hard, because if you're a passionate entrepreneur, you look at somebody like me and go, Steve, you don't get it. I'm right. I'm passionate. I got it. I've nailed it. I've talked to 20 people. They're all over me. I'm, I'm done. We're launching. And I'll usually go, great. So this ought to be a very quick exercise. In about 20 minutes, you could go out of the building or get some people to click on your website and confirm just what I said. For those of you thinking about companies, and particularly those of you building web companies, you could run this exercise in a week. And trust me, it will be very sobering. The goal is not to convince you not to do a business. The goal of a customer development process is simply to take the hypotheses about your business and product as is and see if there's customers in a market outside the building. Some of you may have some friends who are starting a company. It's not a bad idea to go and just volunteer and say, hey, look, by the way, I'll do that for you. I'll, I'll go take it and show it to folks. It, it just do, offer that as a summer gig. That's, that's my job this summer. Just I'll get out of the building for you, go show it to users, go show it to potential partners, and see what happens. And, it, and it'll be, it's a heck of a fun job. You, you, you know, have whatever title you want to. Get out of the building, manager. <laughs> that can be it. All right, so let's, uh, let's look at another model. Have you ever heard of this thing called crossing the chasm? Have you ever heard of such a thing? It's a book, and it's a way um, that entrepreneurs um, talk about, okay, we got out of the building, we got some momentum, you'll, and you'll have speakers in here, and, and a, good time to, a good question to ask them is like, okay, where are you in this uh, curve? Are you, you've got some initial sales, and you're selling to uh, certain types of personalities, innovators and early adopters, people who will try anything. That, that's, that's the people who, who you go see when you get out of the building and show products early on. And they'll, they'll pay something. There's just not a lot of them. Eventually, every, in, especially in technology companies, the only way to survive and be a larger entity is get to the fat part of that curve. All of us, no matter, no matter 
who you are in the room. We fall somewhere, when we're talking about a particular technology, we fall somewhere on this adoption curve. In other words, when do we adopt? Some early adopters, they're at least trying, and they're, you know, they're, they're, there's, a, there's a market there. That's a sixth of the total. But the rest of us are a little more pragmatic, a little more conservative. Probably the first time some of you have ever been called conservative. <laughs> Um, but you know, you're there in the middle, but you are, you're being conservative by you're saying, well, yeah, he's got, all these other attributes have got to come into play before I'll consider, you know, something else than a, a traditional, uh, just, you know, uh, traditional car. So everybody has that. And we, but you know, smartphones, is there anybody in the room that does not use a smartphone? Like my brother? What? Wow. Cool. You're called a laggard. <laughs> Although there's some something retro hip about it, right? Really? Is it like a puppy? No. No. You don't, you don't whip it out and go, check it out. I've got, I've got, I've got a flip phone. Um, so, you know, some of us just never get... So, anyway, this guy came up with this um, um, model. And, and most startups die between... You see that there's a chasm in there? That's where that comes from, crossing the chasm. Most startups die from having a little bit of initial sales. So um, after Symantec, I, I, got a, uh, I got together with a fellow who had invented spreadsheets. I, I, I kid, I can't, I'm, on, I'm being taped. I kid you not. <laughs> you can substitute anything you want to for kid. I kid you not. I got to start a company with a fellow who invented spreadsheets. Visicalc was the name of it, and, and it was awesome. So we had a team of about 50 people. It was incredible, $12 million in venture capital. We were going to make software, and we did make a bunch of software for pad computers and um, you know, little handheld. Uh, they used to be called personal digital assistants before they were called smartphones. We were going to make software for that. So guess what year this was, though? It wasn't last year. Nah. 1990. Not, it didn't work out. You're talking about bad batteries and everything else. I mean, the hardware didn't work. So we just we went right into the chasm. We, we sold a few, because a few people were lugging around really bulky uh, pads and, and uh, handheld uh, digital assistants <laughs> whose batteries, excuse me, whose batteries would last about 10 minutes. So we hit this chasm about Mach 40. You know, we went up and we were all celebrating, we were selling, <coughs> raised some more venture capital and went right into the chasm. Boom, right to China. <laughs> And blew out, you know, blew out. We went bankrupt. We went out of business. So how do you get across? Um, you know, sometimes it's just you're too early. You're just too early. Like, uh, you know, fine, now pads, you know, are all the rage. And uh, fine. But other times there's ways to get across. And it's, it's, come, it's something called uh, positioning. Have you ever heard of this elevator pitch from your courses? Yeah, you've got a few minutes. You know, I'm rambling on here. But if I was a true entrepreneur, I would be in here quickly uh, telling you, I got a couple of minutes to convince you to want to learn more. For, for those of you in the venture competition, that's what you're trying to come up with. It's like, oh my God, I got two minutes, three minutes, I got to hook them, and then go from there. So that's uh, positioning. So let's, what, is, what belongs in a positioning pitch? Let's hear from a pretty famous guy that helped uh, Apple get underway, and he writes a lot of great books, including this one, a new one called Enchantment. His name is Guy.
The sixth thing is to niche thyself. Um, this is all the marketing you ever need to know. It's also probably all the R&D and product design you ever need to know. I think that this chart can explain basically all of marketing and product design. On the vertical axis is the ability to pr produce a unique product or service. On the horizontal axis is the value of that service or product to the customer. As you might suspect, this is going to be a two by two. And as you might suspect, you're going to want to be high and to the right. But let's go through the other corners first. The first corner is where you provide something of great value to the customer, but there are 10 other competitors doing it. At that point, you have to compete on price because it is not a unique product or service. It's an ugly place to be. Another corner is where you provide something and only you provide it, but nobody wants it. That's where you're stupid. <laughs> In lower and to the left is the absolute worst corner. That's where you provide something that nobody cares about and there are 10 ways to get it. And that's over here. That means you're a dot-com company. <laughs> the prototypical example of a dot-com company was the ability to buy dog food online. That's why there's a dog food picture. You know, at the height of the dot-com phenomenon, you could buy a case of dog food online for 10% than what you would pay for by driving to a brick and mortar store, a Pet Mart or a Petco, right? You could save 10%. However, dog food is so heavy that you would pay $10 in shipping, which would be more than compensate for the 10% discount. So in effect, the dog food was of no value to the customer buying it online. However, there were six ways you could do it. There was pets.com, mypets.com, epets.com, ipets.com, lastminutepets.com, discountpets.com. There's 16 ways to buy dog food for more than you would pay in a store. That explains the dot-com phenomenon. So the holy grail of positioning in product design and marketing is to figure out how the hell you get into that corner where you are the single white tulip in a field of crappy other tulips. <laughs> how do you do that? What is so unique about your product or service? It can be features, it can be price, it can be geographic location, it can be service levels. I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, how is it unique? And by the way, that unique element better be valuable to the customer. An example of a company that I think is very high and to the right is Fandango. So Fandango allows you to buy a movie ticket before you go to the movie. So you really know you have a ticket and you can just zip through the line because they scan your printed out ticket, right? That's great value to the customer. And you can only buy it through Fandango. That company is high and to the right. So the basic proposition here is for you to be high and to the right. You can think of it as being like our president, high and to the right. Okay? <laughs>
the best at, at bringing that value. That's the second one. Unlike anything else, you know, we have a, a competitive advantage. So there's all these MBA terms on the left, and that's just saying the same thing. It's just, it's just, it, this uh, is much simpler than that, just to turn it into a couple of sentences. That's before, and this is what's interesting. The, the, the best startups do this before they start a website or uh, a campaign or pricing, and I'm, I'm talking about you know, web companies, but it's, the same thing goes for medical companies or energy companies. So let's just have a little fun by taking a look at a couple of them. So for example, the old iPhone, uh, this will be for the iPhone say, several years ago. Uh, for anyone who wants to travel in style and loves to communicate, the Apple iPhone is a smartphone and iPod that has a, Apple's legendary uh, you know, ease of use and cool. So that's sort of the value, you know, what it is and who's it for. And then unlike Blackberries that were all the rage at the time or similar type of smartphones, it had a differentiation. How many of you have iPhones? Yeah, which is pretty dramatic. What, what, how many have Blackberries? Oh, okay, still a horse race. And, um, and then Android. Android, yeah, so it's, even, it's a three-way horse race. So, so you could do the same sort of um, uh, positioning statement for Android. They, they would have one. Um, or BlackBerry. All right, so let's take a look at a, another one, um, Tesla. Have you heard about this, the Roadster? So this is for the Roadster as opposed to the sedan. But it says, okay, for wealthy um, individuals in car aficionados who want an environmentally friendly and high-end sports car, it's an electric automobile that delivers unprecedented performance although it probably needs some battery attention, correct, from my, my buddy up there. Uh, unlike Ferraris and Porsches, which I know a lot of you drive, I'm sure, this is your market, uh, it has product, uh, has fantastic mileage and, uh, and no, direct, no direct carbon emissions. <laughs> there may be a long tail on the, on the uh, carbon emissions, but that's a positioning statement. That's a, an elevator pitch, that's a strategy. And in just going through this exercise, is a monumental step for a startup team. That sometimes they just start executing. They just start doing things without, you know, it's like shooting without getting ready or aiming. Kind of like, remember when Dick Cheney went hunting with his buddy? <laughs> he just sort of shot without getting ready or aiming. So it would be just that insane. Um, so let's, uh, let's uh, crank it up here a little bit because I'm, I'm rambling. All right, so the th have you heard of this term called lean startup? It's a, it's a real buzz term right now. It means it's focus. It means that the entrepreneurs uh, talk a certain language and, and act it out. Every company, it, you, yes, you can have a really cool strategy and, and um, elevator pitch like we just talked about, but there's still risk involved. It's a startup. It, it's, it's by definition has risk in it. The entrepreneurs know that. and shouldn't be afraid of that. and shouldn't be afraid of admitting it. What people around them, their employees, you know, the, the people who come to work every day and they're just giving it all to them, or their partners uh, in business, or their investors, just want the entrepreneur to know that the entrepreneur is aware of which risk, which one of these risks. Is it the technology? Is this stuff going to really work? Or is it, if it does work, is the market really going to buy it? Or do we have the right team? Or do we have enough... Are we making something like if it's a, like a little refinery that's going to take grease and turn it into diesel? Do we have enough sources of capital eventually to have lots of refineries? 
So it's any one of these things. It, it depends. If you're in a, it depends on what type of company you're looking at. So a good thing to ask any speaker you have that's coming and talking about a company, say, okay, what's your risk this year? Number one, that's, that's causing you sleepless nights. And they ought to be able to answer that really crisply because it's, it's very startup specific. Um, so, uh, you know, it's like a ring of fire they're in the middle of, and which one they're going to run to. I mean, entrepreneurs are great. They run to the fire, but they are, know exactly which one they're going after. The other thing that's really interesting, it'd be fun to ask entrepreneurs that come, is to say, how much cash do you have in the bank? And then do the same thing when you have a corporate executive in here. Say, how much cash does your company have? Ask me, how much cash does Stanford University have on our balance sheet? I have no clue. Because I just don't think of it that way. I just think, well, we'll just never run out. I mean, you know, we, endowments go up and down and economic crisis and all that, but I don't worry about that. Entrepreneurs will tell you down to the penny. And it's a, it's a really interesting phenomenon. They know because the cash is like uh, blood pressure. They're like a patient. No cash, no blood pressure, end of, of the startup, end of their dream. Um, so where does it come from, though? This is a really complicated slide because the good news for this slide or the sort of takeaway is that there's lots of sources of capital. And they're mapped out across two uh, dimensions. One is decreasing risk, and that's typically from, you know, when a company's in the idea stage, there's a lot more risk than when it's profitable. So that's the x-axis. And then the y-axis is the amount of capital you can uh, raise if you're an entrepreneur from that particular kind of investor. So you've, Ann Winblad last week, she's a venture capitalist, you know, squarely there in the middle of the picture. And you've had angels here before. I saw in the winter you had my buddy Brett Bullington. With, he had a nice little picture too, I noticed, from the past when he was a student here at UCSB. Um, so he's referred to as an angel, a wealthy investor who does um, investing um, uh, uh, you know, in startups. And anybody think they have a shot at what I mean by FFF? Friends, families, and what's the third one? Fools. Yeah, good. Yeah, uh, somebody else. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, I won't go there. But somebody else said it was a, good. Fools, a work. Um, so it's like uh, I invested in a movie once. What a foolish thing to do. And this money is long gone. For those of you from L.A., you know, we're, just, we're all suckers at some point. Oh, I'm going to own 10% of a movie. Boom, done, over. Um, so that same thing kind of goes for any sort of uh, investing at that level. So it, but they, get, they deserve a big return. So that's why it says decreasing return. If they're going to take such risk, they, des uh, they deserve that. Um, you know, banks really don't get into play until later on. Every one of these have pros and cons, but there's this thing called IPO in the top right. It's kind of a disappearing phenomenon, and it's got a lot of people concerned. It's initial public offering. So what's really interesting, given, and you can read all about this in Wall Street Journal or on the, in your favorite financial blogs, that what happened to IPOs? And that could be debated. What, what's really interesting is that company, alternatives are coming out, and there's, there's something called secondary markets. Have you been reading about how Facebook shares are being traded? They are. They're being traded not in a necessarily a public market like you might have NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange, but they're being traded by a company called uh, Second Market, and, and there are similar ones. 
So we had that fellow yesterday in our speaker series. I, if you want to learn more about that, I urge you to take a look at our speaker series because he was fascinating about this trading in alternative assets, they're called, or private company shares. And it's got, you know, it's got some controversy related to it. But at least it's a way for entrepreneurs to raise capital. Um, this is a really uh, tough to read slide. It just shows uh, venture capital investment for the last 30 years. So we're talking about sources of capital. Probably the one that gets the most attention is venture capital. And I live in an area that is about 40 to 50% of the venture capital in the United States, or at least the venture capital firms are in the area that I'm, uh, I call home. So take a look at what's going on. The red, if you can, if you can see it uh, differentiated, is, the world, is venture capital de uh, deployed in the world. Black is in the United States. So you know, it's mostly a United States phenomenon for many, many years, going back you know, in the 80s, the 90s, you see the, the dot-com phenomenon that you've heard about in history uh, from about 10, 20, uh, 12 years ago, and it, goes, it spikes up to $100 billion, and then it comes back to some sort of steady state of about oh, 30 billion, mostly United States, but look what happened last year. Um, you, the black line is still about flat, but look at the red line. Uh, Global venture, uh, venture capital went up, shot up to $100 billion. I have no idea what's going on, although it, it's worthy of paying attention to. Probably a good bit in Asia and in India. Um, but the United States deployment is relatively flat. But look at that. It's a 5 to 1 ratio uh, to, to what's being deployed worldwide. So if anything, I guess as a student, I'd take is, well, I want to go figure that out a little bit, but it makes it even more important to be a, a global citizen, not just thinking about the U.S. So people write business plans to get venture capital. They think they have to, you know, there's business plan competitions and there's lots of help on how to write a great business plan. My favorite piece is by this fellow from Harvard. It's, it's a little old, but it, it's, it's still a classic, how to write a great business plan. That was the name of it. And I, and I urge you to go read it. The examples are a little old, but it's, it's nice. And all he says is, and it's, a, it's a, a reorientation of the thinking to say, look, um, a great business plan explains that there's a wonderful alignment between opportunity, resources, people, and, oh, the economy and regulation. Okay, so write a business plan, get it funded, end of story, that's what entrepreneurship is. Is that right? I'll answer my own question now. Um, I like working with a, a group of people who look at it this way, and what's the one I want to share with you. A startup is a temporary state. The business plan is really just one little milestone, one little tiny thing on the way to looking for a repeatable and searchable business model. Like just, you know, in other words, how is the company going to make money? And this is the really fun part of the game. Writing a business plan is a pain. And it's important because, you know, the least put down the initial thinking, fine. But what the really enjoy, uh, the, the, the point of incredible enjoyment in entrepreneurship is searching for this business model, a repeatable, scalable way that the, this startup will not be a startup anymore. It will actually be something that has huge impact in whatever those markets you know, that we're turning you on like we talked about. So let's have a look. Let's listen to a fellow who teaches with us who wrote a book called Getting to Plan B. If, plan, if the business plan is plan A, what is plan B? 
want to recognize the fact that your new book that just came out with John Mullins, Getting to Plan B. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing about that book is that the assumption is that all business plans are really plan A, and it's very unlikely that they're going to succeed. So um, are all business plans a work of fiction? You know, it's, it's interesting. I'm going to take one step back on John Mullins because John Mullins was brought to me by Tom Byers. John Mullins was here from the London School of, um, of Business about 2006 or seven, and he was working on a thesis around business models. And he came to me with this idea that there was a way to sort of methodically map business models for startups. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I doubted that. Uh, and so we ended up in a debate, and the debate became this plan B phenomena, which fundamentally was around the notion of, could you actually build a business plan before there was a product? Could you build a business plan before there was a customer? Um, and in my experience, that didn't work very well. And so we went out and did the research. And the research suggested that, in fact, the vast majority of plan A's fail. And the vast majority of the successes that we think about out there, the Googles of the world, the, the Facebooks of the world, um, the Intuits, the Suns, the Apples of the world, they didn't succeed with plan A. And that's sort of a little-known fact. Uh, most people sort of sweep that under the the carpet and sort of talk about these companies as if they had executed um, well from the idea to conception, from conception to product, from product to customer, from customer to business. That's not the way it normally goes. And so the premise behind Plan B, uh, Getting to Plan B, the new book that uh, we just, I just wrote with John Mullins, is that if Plan A is most often fail, which they empirically do, then should we have a different methodology for how we, in fact, run startups and get to the right plan, plan B. So here we are. We've gone through sort of, uh, you know, my favorite things about product and market and financing and getting the, you know, the, the fact, the last thing, entrepreneurship, it's not just about writing a business plan, it's just getting to plan B, finding a business model. i got three quickies, if you'll oblige me, having to do with you. Whether you're going to do a startup now or ever, or um, it's just a, it's a frame, a frame uh, of reference about being an entrepreneurial thinker. So the first one is uh, you're going to be on, you know, we're social animals. You're going to be on some sort of team. It might be a sports team. It might be a club. It might be fraternity or sorority. When you leave here, it might be some, some, something that's got a mission that has uh, something it's trying to accomplish. And how is that group going to become a team? So you have... Uh, you ever seen this picture before? This is like famous on the internet. Who is it? Microsoft, yeah. And in, uh, about the time, uh, so just like I would have had trouble getting through security at the airport, these guys would have as well <laughs> nowadays. But in those days, it was all right. Where's Bill Gates on this? Bottom left. So where's Paul Allen, his co-founder? Bottom right, yeah. It looks like a Unabomber. Here he is, but a cool, cool guy, and um, and and so everybody. And I'm, I'm, I bet you, I hope this pounded into you that it's uh, any entrepreneur who comes in and says, "Wait a minute, I get all the uh, credit." It goes to the team because it just happens to be true. I mean, it it's absolutely true that innovation. If the, if it's okay, if entrepreneurship is not your bag, people said, you know, I'm kind of. Uh, it's a closely related thing is innovation. Just innovate in anything. I mean, um, all sorts of people do that. And it, as an engineer, I love this uh, equation that friends shared with me. It's a function 
of creativity and teamwork. So you can have a really creative team, and if you don't have teamwork, forget about it. No innovation. Or you can have great teamwork. I mean, you party really well, but there's not a lot of creativity in that. That's not going to uh, uh, produce a much innovation as well. So, because if at the end, I mean, everybody's obsessed with innovation right now. Our own president, you know, he opened this. Remember the State of the Union a few months ago before everything went to uh, nuts in the world? <laughs> uh, he had a State of the Union address, President Obama, in January, and he opened it with five or ten minutes on innovation and entrepreneurship. And that's essentially what he was talking about. He's looked like I, he wants a country that's both creative and operates like a team. We'll hopefully get there sometime, and you, you'll be part of it. So um, let's go to the next one. What is your personal entrepreneurial skills? Which one of, uh, need improvement, and are you okay with potential failure? So here's what I mean by uh, personal entrepreneurial skills. And I'm going to, again, I'm, I'm talking whether startup's not the point. It's just thinking like an entrepreneur is going to pay off no matter what you do. So have you ever heard of this T-shaped person concept? Um, this is simply, it's what employers want. I swear, if you lined up a bunch of employers here and really drilled down to what they're looking for, or, or anybody that's going to you know, uh, um, hire you or, or ask you to join their team on something, they want somebody who really understands the discipline deeply. I mean, really gets it in their gut. So the, whatever di deep dive you're doing in a major um, or your own passion, fine, go for it. It could be in arts, it could be humanities, it could be in science, engineering. Just di dive as deep as you can and get to know it at such a level that you can just feel it uh, in your gut. Just like, uh, you know, and hopefully it wasn't a matter of survival, but that you enjoyed those courses you took when you first got here, the general education courses. Well, this is sort of the back end of that. It's saying, look, learning about entrepreneurship and innovation, leadership, creativity, whatever words you want to put around uh, analogous words, um, it's going to pay off because it really does make you broader. And that's what, th these, these issues in the world are so complex, and, and being uh, any kind of startup that is going to scale and be a, a bigger enterprise need really good thinkers that not only understand something, whatever business they're in or, or uh, thing they're pursuing at a deep level, but they're also great thinkers. So that's the T-shaped people. So specifically, I mean, I got my list here, the top skills are thinking skills, really being comfortable with change. Like when something, when change happens, are you, does that create fear in you? Or do you say, wow, that's good. When change happens, I go after, that, that just creates opportunity. And, and be, the whole debate about globalization, does that create fear about, oh my God, we're losing jobs overseas? Or does that say, okay, uh, that creates an opportunity? Same, you know, thing goes for uh, create, uh, decision making. As an engineer, it was very hard for me to get up past thinking about everything as a binary decision. When most decisions you've got to make without uh, a lot of information, and it's really, uh, really a, a matter of just a, a feel for the decision, uh, just making some sort of decision. The ones in green are interpersonal skills, just being able to do this uh, and not drive you, I hope I'm not driving you crazy, uh, just communicate like, like this in a, in a decent way. Uh, ethics is in this, my little word cloud here, ethics is uh, pretty large because great entrepreneurs bend 
the game as much as possible, but they never break the rules. I mean, character still matters. Reputation matters. If once an entrepreneur crosses the line in terms of integrity and, and uh, bad behavior, they're, they're sort of cooked, and, that, and the system fixes itself. And that, uh, you know, you, I'm, I hope you take ethics classes, but as far as I'm concerned, any entrepreneurship class, including this one, is an ethics class. It's just embedded inside it. And then last but not least, just learning just enough about business, you know, uh, and finance and accounting to, to know the language. So in our, uh, one of our entrepreneurship programs is called Mayfield Fellows Program. It's a work-study program. And this was a, an absolute, so that was my list. This is from students like you. So we uh, kept a diary during the summer. Every student did. And it was a 15 of them last summer. They're working in startups like Facebook to Twitter to some energy startups and medical. And they kept a, 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 a diary where we were, we were asking questions every week, and he would answer them. Um, so this is the world, word cloud from that diary. I mean, they generated a lot of text. So you know, some of the stuff is irrelevant, but look, at, look how big people is. Uh, look how, you know, think is big. Engineering is big. Uh, entrepreneur, of course, is big. Time. Um, what's some other word? Product, of course. Uh, employee success, management, leadership. It was just interesting uh, how some of those same sort of themes came out that this is what's important to be successful in a startup. So what am I missing, though? What's missing back here and what's missing here? A lot of people, we have delegations from all over the world come to Silicon Valley, and it sounds like many of you are from that area. And the question that's asked is, oh, come on, you know, I've got to catch a plane. Just tell me. What's the secret sauce of Silicon Valley? Just, just tell me. So I'm going to have a colleague do that who wrote a really good book. Well, this is a whole chapter. This one is about risk-taking and being willing to fail. In fact, if you're not failing sometimes, you're not taking enough risks. And one of the things that we do that we're lucky about being in Silicon Valley is that there's an incredible culture of risk-taking and a comfort with uncertainty and a willingness in this area to um, embrace failure and to learn from failure. This is certainly not the case around the world. There are many places in the world where if you fail, I mean, you really feel like you need to just sort of change your name and move somewhere else. It's not okay. But here, we are very much encouraged to learn from our mistakes and to do it again. In fact, there are many, many people who have started one company that has fa have failed and then gone on to do something else and been very successful. And uh, people look at them and say, you know, what did you learn from that failure? Great, you won't do that again. Did you learn something from it? All right, well, I urge you to take a look at this book. It really is called What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20. Have anybody read it? Do you like it? Yeah. Um, I want, I'm waiting for her to write What I Wish I Knew When I Was 50-something, but <laughs> she won't write that. But I, I urge you to take a look at that and, um, and really embrace failure. I mean, I, we, we failed spectacularly. I talked about that earlier, and that, I learned more from that experience than I did from Symantec. So one, can I do one more? One more? All right, I got one more. All right. Uh, so, you know, I've been asking you to sit in the role of an entrepreneur, but let's just flip it around. Just be yourself right now. Where are you going to go to work uh, in the next one or two or three years when you're, we're all said and done here because it's undergrads? Where are you going to go? What, what would it take for a, a company to get you excited? You know, that's, that's it. Is it like, promising you you're going to make a lot of money? I mean, if, by the way, if it's not, I mean, or let's just stick on companies. It could be public service. It could be more academic uh, 
uh, pursuits, and that's, that's perfectly fine. But let's just stay, at least narrow it down to say, what has a company got to do to convince you to come? Um, and at the end of the, I mean, so flipping it around, it's important for the people running the company, whether it's a small or even a large company, to just convince you that there's purpose here. There's, 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 you know, there's the, the products are meaningful. They, they are doing something uh, good and not just uh, after creating lots of wealth. So the person I've asked you to, uh, to come on and be with us today in this virtual way is uh, Sheryl Sandberg. So we, you, did you see the movie, The Social Network, like everybody else, right? I assume that. And um, so it ends about 2005. They've moved out to Palo Alto. You ever heard of Facebook? Ha, ha, ha. And they move out. And so uh, Mark struggles with, through a couple of presidents, or COOs, chief operating officers. In other words, the person to run the business side of Facebook. But he finally comes across Cheryl about two, three years ago. And she had been at Google, and before that she was in the Clinton White House. And um, this is her talking about um, making meaning or, or scaling a vision. And since she's joined the company, it's been very interesting how the company has hit uh, escape velocity. Her, her remarks mirror some terrific stuff from books called Built to Last and Good to Great. But let's just hear from Cheryl directly. So there's a lot of talk about how to run organizations. And people who are smart about this separate out management and leadership. And they talk about management as things like the science of administering a business. And it has this very best practices kind of uh, theme to it. And I hate those terms. And I can hate them because I was a consultant. So I'm, I always make fun of consultants and business school students because I was both. But it has that very consultant thing. But it really is the kind of one plus one equals two. If I do this, the company does this. If I do this, the company does that. It's a science. And then there's this leadership thing. And this leadership thing always has this kind of more art or more magical idea towards it. And what it is, I think, you know, it's the art of administering a business so that people, uh, sorry, the art of accomplishing more than the science of management teaches you is possible. With management and with authority and with, you know, structures all businesses and organizations have, you can get people to do things. You work for me, I ask you to do A, you're likely to do A. But while you can get compliance, you can't get passion. <coughs> You can't get true excitement. That's what leadership is. Leadership is helping people or finding a way to convince a group of people that are working together on something, or in some cases aren't working very well together, to follow what the mission is, what you want, to follow whatever it is with true enthusiasm. And it is that enthusiasm which transcends science, which makes it seem like one plus one equals three, not two. So people talk a lot about, well, how do you get there? How do you be a great leader? And I think it's a lot of things, and I don't pretend to have the answer. But it's a bunch of things about who you are as a person. People follow people they respect and trust. If you don't have respect and trust, you don't have any hope of being a great leader. Some of the stuff are skills you can learn. People look at people who are great speakers, who are really convincing orators, and they say, wow, I want to follow that person. People who can tell great stories, great narratives. But when you take all the personal stuff aside, there's something else that's really important to great leadership, 
which is the purpose of the leadership. And that's what I mean by scaling a vision. That you can lead all day long, but if you're leading people to, you know, make soap, that's important. But does it have that, I want to follow this, I want to, you know, serve this mission until the end of my life, I want to stay up all night and work all day to serve that mission. It's having a great vision that I think becomes the basis of real leadership. And that vision has to be one that scales, that can take you from where you are to the more than foreseeable future. Tons of, if anything, I hope I inspired you to just go learn more. The traditional way, there's tons of books I was highlighting from the, uh, my colleagues. Um, but the videos are including, there's some really funny ones of uh, Mark Zuckerberg, because we shot him um, after that summer of 05, uh, having just mentioned him, we had video of him from uh, around October when he had just moved out. So it's interesting to watch that and see how uncannily uh, it feels like you're watching the actor from the movie. Um, so I encourage you to do that. So there's a couple thousand videos there. They're on YouTube as well as that site. And then um, blogs are, are a terrific way. There's some wonderful bloggers, including some of the people that I uh, introduced you to today. So that's it. Um, you know, the news has been kind of funky lately. So if you don't like it, as an old DJ used to say, go out and make some of your own. So I hope you'll do that. And, and let me know how it goes. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.